Welcome to A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar, a podcast with relatively well-informed and irreverent musings on religion, news, and society. And now, for your hosts, Rabbi Asher Lopatin and John Geringer. Hey, John, good evening. Good evening to you, Asher. You've had quite the week. I want to hear about the rally. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a uh, history in the making, right? It was 300,000 people. And uh, we had Detroit is on the Eastern Standard Time. So I like to think about that. We're really East Coast. But uh, to try to get three charter planes to D.C., not easy. Lots of issues we could talk about. But it was wonderful to be there. Our girls took a bus from University of Michigan. They got there. My flight got there. Rachel and Gideon were stuck on the plane. They didn't make it beyond the tarmac. So they were not in D.C. They were in Northern Virginia. There was a separate rally of 300 people on the tarmac in Dulles. It was part of the infamous bus incident. Tell us what happened. To protect the integrity of this podcast, we don't know. We don't know. We wouldn't want to (laughs) spread any malicious rumors, but... It was reported, and it really seems that there was a sick out of bus drivers because either they were anti-Israel, they didn't want to take people to a pro-Israel rally, or they were intimidated or threatened, and so they didn't have the buses. Now, I heard that this went on in other places as well. It wasn't just Detroit. And may I remind you, John, this was not Detroit bus drivers. It was Dulles. Northern Virginia. So they were stuck at Dulles. And what could they do? Nothing. They were just there. Yeah, it was a charter plane. So it was stuck in a runway like a mile and a half from the terminal. There was no bus to take them there. They couldn't enter. the. So they were stuck on the plane the whole time. And they really had great attitude. They were singing. For a brief moment, they did go on the tarmac and they sang, I'm Yisrael Chai on the tarmac. <laughs> but but when they got back to Detroit, the Jewish Federation made a big party for them. They had set up an amazing party with music and food and magicians. So everyone felt like everyone made an effort. But um, this is something that is going to be investigated. And it's just not tolerable. It's really... it's. Scary. It's really scary. This is real discrimination uh, against Jews. It's really interesting to see how folks who are aligning themselves with Hamas and their supporters engage in this sort of asymmetric warfare, both over there, obviously, at a thousand worse Mm -hmm. degree, but even here to the extent that they can, whether it be walkouts like that or ripping down signs or defacing monuments or just engaging with cops and it, in a way that just seems so wrong. And when you compare it against the Israel rally, when it seemed so obviously patriotic towards Israel, but also patriotic towards America and American values, it made me so proud to watch it. I had to teach that night. So unfortunately I couldn't go, but I watched the whole thing. It was great. It made me proud. All the speakers were cool. The singers were fantastic. Mm. And the interesting thing from a Halakhic perspective, right, there were almost 300,000 people there, and they say almost 300,000 there and 300,000 who are Israel called up. 
equals 600,000, which is a big number for Judaism. It is akin to the, basically the men who are at Mount Sinai, maybe not everybody, but the men. Well, men, over, a, men over 20 and under 60. Yes. Yeah. And, and so there's even a blessing to be said, Hakam Hazarim, about like, God as a knower of secrets. Yeah. yeah, like that, which is such an interesting blessing because you think it's a blessing about, I don't know, big, this and that. But it's that even within a crowd like that, every single person is an individual. And that was part of the fun. of I mean, it's serious. And when it got to the parents of the hostages and Rachel Goldberg, and that's where we were all releasing. But a lot of it was, hey, how are you? I haven't seen you for so many years. <laughs> it was incredible to see people from Anchi Shalom, from New York, from here, from there. It was amazing. So everyone in this crowd of 300,000, everyone's an individual. And that's something to remember. And I think that's something that our people celebrate and other people don't let individuals be. There's so much intimidation. You're totally right. Now it's coming out about doctors that were so intimidated by the hospitals, by Hamas. It's real. It's a real challenge for the Jewish community because we in general operate within the rules, except for white collar crime, but other things. <laughs> we, we don't and, like to talk about that. Exactly. But we're not used to, like you said, asymmetric warfare and Israel suffering from that. Certainly Palestinians are suffering from that because they're the victims of, of Hamas. But in America, it's really, it's something that, I don't know, we really have to um, get a grip on. And I don't think January 6th wasn't against Jews, but it was, you know, also like asymmetric warfare. Like the Capitol didn't know how to control it. And now these protesters are blocking the Democratic National Headquarters and then California. And I don't know, We just one more point is that a lot of these people are... Jews are claiming they're Jewish, and that is really disturbing. Yeah, I don't know if you saw, there was one uh, bunch of rabbis who were uh, reading from the Torah that day, and when they got to the point of the Torah reading about Abraham being given the, the land of Israel, uh, the, the rabbi said it in a very quick tone, just like we read the toughness out of the curses elsewhere in the Torah. She read it as if, let, let's not call attention to the fact that Abraham was given this land many thousands of years ago. It's so blasphemous against Islam because Islam, Muslims see Abraham as their father also. So you have to go back to the black Hebrews that think it's really their land and it's not Palestinian land or Jewish land or whatever it is, or I don't know, Canaanites. You got to, maybe they have to be the Canaanites have to make a comeback and claim that land as the indigenous peoples. So uh, it's really, yeah, I, John, I don't know how you feel. I'm Mr. Pluralism always, and I love people, and I, but I really have a lot less tolerance now for people that are, don't recognize the right of Israel to exist as a Jewish state, meaning Jews. I really, I don't know. I don't want to deal with them. I really think it's just so, you know, I'm not going to, uh, burn down their house. Like if you are a Muslim and you criticize Hamas, you run into that danger. So I mean, they can say whatever they want, but whether we're really going to treat them as part of the Jewish people, it's really difficult. Some people have even said that they should be put in harem. Why don't you unpack what harem is sort of excommunication from the Jewish people? 
Yeah, it was used actually uh, in the medieval period, and you're not supposed to talk to them. You can't count them in a quorum, in a minion. Uh, it was uh, something used uh, early on and, and then through the medieval period, actually called Nidoy sometimes. But actually, Rav Aaron Soloveitchik always used to, my Rebbe, used to always say that if you look in the halakhic, the authorities, the legal authorities, we're not allowed to do that anymore. We don't, because the Gentiles didn't like that, because a lot of times we're, <laughs> it just wasn't healthy for, gen, for society for the, to, put, to cut people off like that. But I remember when I was in seventh grade, my classmate's father was a big rabbi, and he put Henry Kissinger, can I know how I in Wow. And they had a ceremony with candles and all sorts of things. So I didn't realize there was a formal fancy ceremony to do this. <laughs> and it wasn't that effective. I don't think it was that effective. But... Was it because of Vietnam or, or the Yom Kippur War or something else? Well, it's crazy. This was 1977. So I don't know what Kissinger Kipper War was three years, four years over. And I don't know. I don't know why they were. He wasn't even in power, Kissinger. So I don't know. But I just remember that. And, but it's not really effective. But I think, I don't know. There, I'm talking to Jewish leaders in the progressive world, and they are talking about red lines and people that will not talk about, we work together for reproductive rights. But here Hamas uses rape as terror and some women's groups are not condemning it. It's just, it is mind boggling. Look, I know we're, our group that's listening to this podcast are mostly people that were preaching to the choir, but. Yeah. And you wonder if there's such a thing we can reinvent maybe harem light where <laughs> maybe we dispense with the candles and maybe we just uh, kick them out of certain things. They have to go to the service, but they can't come to the kiddish. They can't have the meal afterwards, right? Make exactly. it really hurt. That is quite a severe punishment. <laughs> but what was great about the the rally was it was on Rosh Chodesh, which meant the beginning of the month. And therefore we read from the Torah and the, the most iconic scene, I think that'll be remembered for it, it, you know, besides pictures of you, obviously, <laughs> is the Torah being lifted up right at the White House. You weren't at that White House no. uh, ceremony, were you? Yeah, I wasn't. My, my brother-in-law was like VIP. I was a schlepper, but no, I wasn't there. We, we actually arrived much too late for that. But John, that brings up this question. I was reading actually Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. Lord Jonathan Sachs was quoting, I think, Hannah, Hannah Arendt that about when anti-Semitism is most destructive of Jews, look up the Dreyfus Affair or, of course, Nazi Germany. Her argument is that when Jews are not so much in power, and that this is a broader idea, this is the best of times and the worst of times. On the one hand, you have that iconic picture. And remember, a couple of years ago, they had a minion. They had actually a, an afternoon service on the White House lawn. And so you have the, the Jews, we've made it in some ways in America. And then in other ways, it just feels like it's very scary. And you have Elon Musk is tweeting or retweeting vicious anti-Semitic claims. So I don't know, what are your, so, you know, that the Torah in front of the White House is an amazing, powerful image, but does it portray where Jews are in America today? Or do Jews getting beaten up by, or, or not being able to go to the rally because there are no buses 
Is that where Jews are today? I think throughout our history, we've learned how to live with those contradictions and be both at the same time, right? I think that's what our Talmudic heritage gives us, the ability to work through hard questions and that life isn't easy and both can be true. It can both be the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah, so that, that I we probably I, met, I probably mentioned this before that movie Life is Beautiful, where the yeah. Italian movie about the Holocaust, where he makes a, a joke and a game of the whole thing, including the concentration camp for his son, and this it was a competition to win a tank, and and I think what that portrayed is that in general, the. Jews have tried to live with an illusion that we can make a go of it, that if we have a sense of humor and we do what we can do, we can survive it. But we saw that in the Crusades and in, in uh, pogroms and in the, certainly in the Holocaust. It doesn't, that doesn't always work. Like, eh, times are tough, but times are okay. It's just really scary. When do you, when do you ring the emergency bell? Like when in the 19... 19- late 1920s or the 1930s, do you say this is not going to work? So for that treatise that I'm working on, Holocaust and the Law, I've been assigned the chapter on lessons for today. So I'm going through the last few years to try to identify what are the lessons, what are the harbingers of things to come, and what are the signposts to to take us from the 1920s to the 1940s. And I'm, I'm thinking about this with every little data point. Tim Snyder, I think I mentioned him before, is a historian who's thought about that as well. And I, I think we have to look at that, but we have to always say that, look, we can bend things in our direction. We're, we're no longer this powerless group who is on this you know, the downhill slope that we can't control. We, we do have levers of control, whether it be IDF or our, our voice or our working through representative democracy. All, all these ways that we can actually effectuate what's to come. And I think we should use every one of those levers. And, you know, each one of you who are able to attend the rally in person and each one of us who are able to attend it online, I think uh, is one grain of sand in that greater whole. Yeah, I wonder how, we'll see how effective all those law firms that are saying they're not going to hire Harvard law students who are anti-Israel and... Those Some of those law firms, there are law firms that probably 60 years ago wouldn't hire Jews. We've come a long way, baby, as the Slim Virginia Slims commercial used to say. But let's and even the, the, look, the Department of Education even is, is catching up, right? There's a provision yeah. called Title VI that yeah. the Department of Education Civil Rights Division is looking at, that they're realizing how they can go after some of this anti-Semitism on campuses right. and uh, the other isms, right? Anti-Islamism and, and the rest. But... They're, they're catching up and they're realizing that this can't go on. Yeah, they're banning JVP from different or SJP from different students for justice in Palestine from some campuses. So, uh, yeah, I guess we just really have to see where this goes. Does this turn around and suddenly Jews feel more secure? And And again, it is the powers of government that as opposed to the 1930s in Germany that were against the Jews. It's the police and like Department of Education that in some ways is trying to defend the Jews and, and prosecute people who are uh, anti-Jewish and anti-Islam, anti-Muslim also. Uh, I guess we really have to watch 
that's a really watch carefully where the trends are going. My brother pointed out that we I we grew up in in the Bay Area and like right near Berkeley People's Park in the 1960s. I was born in 64. So we experienced the hippies and People's Park and LSD and all that stuff. And experience it, but we witnessed it. <laughs> witnessed it. I was going to say, are you going to make a pronouncement on the show? No, we were, we, my parents were not into that, at least as far as I know. But, <laughs> but my brother was saying like that movement, the hippies, communes, they wanted to separate from Western society and they, there was all, and then of course the next decade, Hare Krishna and Moonies and Buddhists and all that, Bujus or whatever, but it wasn't a hatred of Western society and I think what my brother sees, and I think we see it like there's a hatred, there's an anger against not only Israel or Jews or Zionism or anything, but against Western society. And that is something that maybe we haven't seen before, that anger and hatred. Yeah, I, I think about our White House davening with the Torah, peaceful, respectful, and people putting red paint on it last week, the, yeah, yeah. the pro Hamas rally last week. And it, it like, we, we've been talking about this cultural divide, this clash yeah. of civilizations that it is going to play out for, for the next few months, if not years, I think we're seeing a, a shift and it doesn't help that 30% of our nation's youth is being educated by Chinese run TikTok, right? Who have every desire in the world, they may not be able to bring themselves up to our level, but they can certainly bring us down to theirs. And so just like the Russians did with Facebook in 2016, I think the Chinese and others are doing with TikTok and other things now. And if we don't keep an eye on it, and if we don't educate our kids correctly, this is what the next generation will look like. And that's scary. Yeah, I think, but uh, luckily we're not, we get YouTube. Yes, no TikTok in our family. <laughs> I think we dodged that bullet as well. I think my daughter only uses it for dance moves, which is perfectly fine by me. I um, love the, I love TikTok commercials where they say how nice it is in old age homes and oh, it's so warm, fuzzy. It's so great. So we, what we should also talk about is the potential deal for the release of the hostages. So much to talk about there. I know that we have this concept of Pidyon Shfuyim, you right. know, of redemption of hostages. And a lot of people have criticized, for example, the Gilad Shalit that was captured in 2006 and then released in 2011, where over a thousand Palestinians in prison were released, including some of the ones who were involved in the massacre last month. And the question is always, is it worth it? And Halakha has something to say on that, doesn't it? Yeah, actually, first, of course, it says it is the greatest mitzvah, but Halacha says that about a lot of things. It's the greatest, <laughs> so, uh, um, but it is a huge mitzvah. That's why government, everyone has to be focused on this. It's so important. But the other thing it says is not to pay lopsided reward or ransom for rescuing hostages in general, and not more than the, the going rate or anything like that. So they don't kidnap Jews more than they might kidnap anybody else. And basically the idea is, and a lot of countries have adopted this, like no negotiations with terrorists. And Israel used to have that. Now it's a little bit, so really that kind of lopsided exchange would not be acceptable. And in this case, 
all for all would seem like it's not acceptable, meaning all 237 hostages released and Israel releases all the prisoners it has from Hamas or Palestinian prisoners and including murderers. So that would seem to be way lopsided and way not acceptable. However, there is a leniency for governments. Like governments have a right to do things that individuals don't do. The halacha, while, while it sets a general principle like that, not to have these lopsided deals, it does give a lot of leeway for a government because when it comes to government, and even Gilad Shalit, it was the sense of the country's the priority that the country had. And that's something governments can consider even when it might incentivize kidnapping, but the government might decide we need it for the mood of the country, for the well-being of the country. There's guidance from halacha, but it really gives the, just like in Israel, like the Supreme Court a lot of times, because it was a government, a lot of leeway when it comes to sort of national security. Right, because they have policy considerations to, to consider as, as well, not just the immediate issue of any one particular individual's worth, so to speak. And, right. and even if it creates this moral hazard issue that at the end of the day, the government can make those decisions and history will judge them accordingly. I think history is not going to judge BV and we'll have to live with that. Yeah. Every night I go to bed, uh, I'm, I'm sure so many people do, hoping that you wake up in the morning like in Tebe, like in 1976, you yeah. wake up like, wow, Israel has rescued these hostages. Instead, we, uh, we've seen the hostages that were murdered. And uh, now we see some uh, video from the hospital, Shifa Hospital, which, which sort of confirms that. Yeah, it's really prayers and with these hostages. And uh, that was maybe one of the most the touching parts of the rally, really, and to hear Rachel Goldberg and all the parents, the several parents speak. It's just really, I think we all just can't imagine what it's like to go through that. But hers was particularly poignant. That really yeah. felt like a punch to the gut hearing her give her yeah. presentation. It really was in, in distinction to some of the other, you know, speakers and Matis Yahoo singing and right. things like that, which were inspiring. But yeah. hers was really, she brought us down and remind, reminded us why we were all there, either in person or virtually. How do every day there's new either videos or audios or transcription of some of the atrocities coming out. And yet every day you have to go out there in your role as JCRC and be on stages, on TV programs with people who may not justify the acts themselves, but certainly don't condemn them. How do you do your job every day? And as more and more details of the atrocities come out and it becomes just more and more indefensible. Yeah, it's, I think that, look, I think if there was, I, I don't have any close Muslim friends who defend Hamas. I think, I don't think a relationship can withstand that. And that's what we talked about a few minutes ago, that just like a harem, like a red line, anyone supporting Hamas. But we do, I do have a lot of friends who say, just can't stomach the killings. And, and again, this is Hamas's method. It, the, the way they survive is by causing these casualties and babies dying and everything. And that gives them their strength, their ability to survive. And so Israel has to fight that. Uh, otherwise, there's no solution to Hamas. And you just have to put up with terrorists that have a grip on the Palestinians just as they murder Jews and Israelis. 
But I have a lot of friends, whether they're Christian or whether they're Muslim, who just, they're not really thinking practically. They're just thinking it's so tragic to have all these deaths, these innocent deaths, just stop it. And they also, you know what? I think people just can't imagine how horrific Hamas is. People are surprised when Israel bombs an ambulance. No, why are you surprised at all? Of course, Hamas is going to use ambulances. And of course, Israel's not going to want to bomb an ambulance unless it has to, because it doesn't look good. So like things, hospitals or schools, like, why is anyone surprised at that? But they are. And so, again, I just, these are friends and they're good people and they're just not, they're just not used to this kind of barbaric warfare of Hamas. And Nebuch, sadly, we're seeing it in Darfur, how horrific. These are Arab forces that are going into Darfur in the Sudan. And are, there was a genocide or a near genocide 20 years ago. At Anshu Shalom, we were protesting against Darfur, against the genocide in Darfur. Yeah, you were on the forefront of all of that. And nothing happened. And there was no real problem. People, they got away with it. So they're doing it again. And just people, just Hamas is able to prey on people's innocence in a sense. But as far as personal friends or people that I'm connected to, I understand. I feel they just don't get it. They just don't get it. But none of them, none of the people that I deal with, I can't deal with people that are against having a Jewish state at all or against, the truth is, or justifying Hamas. It's, so it is challenging. It's challenging. The relationship with imams, religious leaders in mosques is going to be challenging, especially their anger towards Biden. I can't understand that either. I understand they, they, if they, they think Biden's too pro-Israel, but what do you want, Trump? Yeah, he wasn't too good. We all remember the Muslim ban. They're going to have an interesting choice to make at the next election, right? Who for them is the lesser evil? But I think we both agree that we know who that is. I hope Nikki Haley, that'd be incredible. If she can pull off, that would be, look, we're, I guess we're nonpartisan on this podcast. I don't know what we are. You're entitled to your views. Honestly, I, I look, she, can... she's a compelling choice, right? Yes. She, when she was at the UN, oh she was God. staunchly pro-Israel. She continues to be pro-Israel. I think the fact that she aligned herself too much with Trump when she really didn't have to is a bit disqualifying. There are many aspects of her that are fantastic. She's the typical old, I call it old school, because I'm old enough to remember when I was a Republican, old school, great Republican candidate that would have soared to the nomination and to the presidency. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, she's pretty reasonable on reproductive rights. I, the one thing that I feel bad is I'm very much the president will choose probably in the next four years or eight years, the next up a Supreme court justice. And I want that one to be more on the liberal side, but it's just, just seeing the democratic party really have, have a difficult time with this, even though the vast majority are supporting Israel, but now some of them ceasefire. I, a ceasefire means letting Hamas win. And I want them to know that it means these thousands and thousands of innocent Palestinians who have died as human shields for Hamas, they will, their death will be in vain if there's just a ceasefire and Hamas is allowed to, to remain. So Yeah, they're, they're doing them no favor, but they are being reflective of a growing part of their base that, again, that based on 
getting knowledge from TikTok okay. and getting knowledge from these education centers that are sponsored in this country at schools from Qatar and places like that, where they are pushing an agenda. Yeah. And not, it'd be one thing if they pushed the agenda and were transparent about it. Uh, it's another thing that Sunshine should be the best disinfectant on those. If we right. knew that Hamas was funding this centers and if we knew that China was pushing things on TikTok that are trying to undermine the United States and Israel. But it's so insidious that we don't see it coming until something like this happens. Someone wrote about the fact that many people were saying this was like Israel's 9-11. It's really in many ways like they're Tet offensive that even though the Gazan, I'm sorry, the Hamas terrorists yeah. are being killed left and right. Right. Same thing with the Viet Cong during the Tet Offensive, but the Tet yeah. Offensive is what led to the demoralization of America with Vietnam. And I, I think their goal, obviously, was to demoralize Israel and help help by having their useful idiots around the world to help in that process. Yeah. So it really, I hope Israel is really strong. And it seems like Israel is doing a great job. They lost over 60 soldiers, but it's not the bloodbath that I think people predicted. And they're really doing a very good, a very thorough job, I think, and a very careful job in Gaza. The one thing that worries me, I don't know if we've talked about it that much, is the the end game. And I hear on General Petraeus and Wesley Clark, this importance of thinking what's going to come afterwards. And especially General Petraeus, who understood the surge and was successful in Iraq. He said it was successful because they were able to bring over the citizen, the common person, to show them that their life is going to be better than it was before under whether it was like crazy Shiites or whoever it was. And that's something Israel, I know Israel is like loath to do. Like Israel does not want to deal with helping rebuild Gaza. And, but I think that's going to be necessary and we'll see what. Yeah. He literally wrote the counterinsurgency manual. Uh, yeah. Reyes did, and he knows better than anyone the risks of what it would be like for Israel to go back and have boots on the ground, which I think would be a mistake. I go back, I think we said it last week, that I, I think there should be some sort of Abraham Accord Arab peacekeeping force there for a while before we do anything. But I, I think Israel on the whole has been good about the best they can under the circumstances, using, targeting in a way that only goes after the bad guys. And Minimizing, again, underlining to the extent possible, civilian damage to the extent possible. It's, and look, uh, uh, we've said this every time we speak about this, Right, it pains me to see innocent Palestinians hurt or dying. It just does. And I, I wish the other side would say the yeah. same. And Israel is really surprisingly doing better PR than they normally do. Like they have spokespeople who could speak English, which is a really good start, <laughs> at least for the American audience. That's right. That's um, right. And really, they're really very good about the stuff they've shown us from Shifa Hospital, and there's still a lot more to show us, but they've done a very good job of that. And, and that's important. It's so important. Like you said, sunlight transparency is so critical. Yeah, the videos of the tunnels under the hospital, the yeah. pictures of the weaponry that were stored. The, it, and it's it's not only a reflection on the hospital, it's a reflection on the United Nations. It's a reflection on UNRWA. It's a reflection on every organization that 
knew or should have known what Hamas was doing. Right. And with with every new piece of evidence, it it shows the the fact that they were colluding, in effect, with yeah, what well, Hamas is doing. And and look, I'm sure they they were doing it out of fear, a lot of them. But that's the same fear that people in the Arab American community have in in Detroit that they're not willing to speak up openly against Hamas because they're worried that their house will be burnt down. And that's also something like Americans don't necessarily get that. And Jake Tapper has pointed out a little bit, you know, that when reporters go in under the auspices of Hamas, they tell them what they can show and what they can't show. And people don't always just understand that. We actually had, um, I guess last week, a media luncheon. Uh, we had a wonderful speaker, or Dr. Ora Peskowitz is the president of Oakland University. Okay, it's not University of Michigan. Okay, but it's one of the top, the leading universities in the Detroit area. 16,000 students. All right. And she was saying how you have to have courage, the heads of these universities, to speak out. And, and the media was really, we had 60 media folks there. They're very open to hearing how could we improve our reporting. And it's just unfathomable what Hamas does to the Western world. We're just not used to that. And like you said, asymmetric tactics. And I guess we got to really get on the ball and get a little bit more sophisticated in the Jewish community as well. Yeah, you hate to show the actual atrocities, uh, yeah. but the, the fact that they're being shown in Hollywood and other places among influencers, or at least excerpts of it, just to give a small taste of the horrific nature of what happened. So you're exactly right that we look at life through our lens in Western civilized society. Once you see that, you can't unsee it and you realize the depravity that we're dealing with. Let's get on a happier topic. How about Thanksgiving? Yeah. We Speaking are of critical. indigenous people. So there are a lot of uh, synagogues, for instance, Spanish and Portuguese, they uh, really believed that, I guess, one of their members was on the Mayflower, I think. <laughs> they they celebrate, they have special prayers for Thanksgiving Day. And I think KJ, Kayla's Jeshua, another Orthodox synagogue in New York, has a special service for Thanksgiving. And yes, I understand that every day in the Jewish, every day is Thanksgiving Day. That's true, but when the whole country gets together just to thank God for America, I think Jews, we should be patriotic and we should be thankful to America. And I remember when I was in yeshiva, I was 17 in Chicago, and my Rebbe, Ramosha Soloveitchik, brought us to his house for a turkey dinner on Thanksgiving. And the old, and I heard that Soloveitchik also was into that, though I, I imagine there's going to be a lot of revisionist history about that. But I think whatever helps us be more grateful for the good things that we have, that's a good thing. And if Turkey, now there's a whole question, is the Turkey kosher in the first place? Because it's an American bird. They didn't have a tradition of turkeys being kosher in Europe or in the Middle East. So there are some people that don't eat turkey. Oh, no, don't say that. Just one more thing you're going to take away from me. First, they took away my... First, they took away my blackberries, which I still eat, by the way. Then they took away my lettuce. Now you're going to take away my turkeys? No, almost everyone eats turkeys, and it's under the OU, so don't worry about that. That'll be fine. I think 
there'll be petri dish turkeys and cultured turkeys before before <laughs> that stringency becomes acceptable or widespread. Okay, good to hear. Listen, you have a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. I know, like you, my family's coming in for what used to be a long weekend, and now it was a week. I don't know what's going on with these crazy colleges, not only pro Hamas, but they also give you a week and a half for Thanksgiving break. Yeah. Yeah. After uh, high tuition. Yeah. But yes, really enjoy your family. And I am excited about the girls coming in and and be here. Judah's still in Israel. But yeah, really wonderful celebration. And even in these times where they're so difficult and so much pain, we do have so much to be grateful for. And that's a, it's a healthy attitude, really, to show gratitude to God and to our country and, and to the wonderful lives, to the people in our lives that we have. I love it. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to get our next episode delivered right to you. If you really like us, please consider leaving a review and sharing this with a friend. That would really help our efforts. And finally, to contact us and for more show-related information, please visit our website, rabbilawyerbar.com. Special thanks to our production team, David Stone for the introduction music, Andrew Bauman for the artwork, and I'm Nicholas Tantillo. This podcast is co-produced with Front and Social Studios in Chicago. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Copyrighted material, all rights reserved. Care.